Hello and welcome to this episode of Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Catherine Haddon, IFG Programme Director and today's podcast presenter. Well, Parliament is in recess, IFG colleagues are off on half-term holidays, so of course an almighty political and legal row was bound to rear its head. The battle between the government and the COVID inquiry broke into the open last week with news that the COVID inquiry chair was threatening legal action if the Cabinet Office did not produce unredacted versions of Boris Johnson's diaries, notebooks and WhatsApps. So what is going on here? Why has the government been battling with the chair of the inquiry it set up? What were they trying to achieve and what does this mean for an inquiry which is going to start oral evidence in a few weeks' time? And the COVID inquiry row may have dominated the news, but it isn't what Rishi Sunak would want us to be discussing. Six months into his premiership, a year to 18 months away from a general election, Sunak has got some political wins under his belt, but is still a long way from restoring his party's fortunes. What does this mean for how he is governing? Is it possible for Sunak to plan and execute his own government programme in two years, or will his government remain at the mercy of his predecessors? To discuss all of this, I'm joined by IFG Programme Director Tim Durrant. Hi, Tim. Hi, Kath. And I'm delighted to be joined by Salma Shah, former Special Advisor to Sajid Javid and founder of Kraken Strategy. Hi, Salma. Thanks for coming on. Hello. And also joining us today is Paul War, Chief Political Commentator for the iPaper. Hi, Paul. Hi there. So this week we heard that the COVID inquiry public hearings are likely to continue through to the summer of 2026. But before they have even got underway, the government has found itself in an almighty row which has threatened to undermine public confidence in the inquiry. The government has claimed this was unambiguously irrelevant material that it didn't want to pass on and then said that setting the precedent of releasing it might undermine collective responsibility. Meanwhile, Boris Johnson said he had no problem handing over the material completely unredacted. Paul, you've been following this story all week. Uh, We're now hearing that the precedent the government wanted to avoid is not necessarily Boris Johnson's WhatsApps, but other government ministers' WhatsApps being handed over. Do you think this is a row they wanted to have or did they underestimate Baroness Hallett? I think definitely the latter. I think they didn't underestimate her. I mean, it's quite clear that she sees this big inquiry um, almost as her legacy, I think, of her role in public life. She did a good job on Grenfell at the start of that. She's a former appeal court judge, so she knows the law inside out. Um, She won't be messed around by political considerations, even though she obviously has to take into account the fact that she's dealing with politicians. Um, And the law is everything. And it's a reminder that actually when Boris Johnson did announce this statutory inquiry, like a lot of his predecessors, he probably didn't quite grasp what a statutory inquiry involves. And the word, Mm. the clue is in the name. You know, it involves sweeping powers for an inquiry to actually gather the information it sees fit. What's happened is that we've had a long-running dispute. It's not just this year, last few weeks. It's last summer when the Treasury devil, uh, James Eady, was advising the government, uh, was saying, look, you've got to be really careful. You've got to be, uh, you're possibly liable to lots of multiple compensation claims from victims and relatives of the pandemic. So you've got to be really quite tight on what you can and cannot hand over. Um, so that's been going on since last summer. And I think what's what's happened, it's all gone on under the radar, is that they did underestimate Hallett's team in saying, no, actually, ultimately, read the, the, the Inquiries Act. We have the final say. You may have concerns, but and some things will obviously have to be redacted for obvious reasons. But, you know, that's our decision, not yours. And I think 
the curious thing is how far the government has pushed it. Yeah, and that, I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? It is normal for an inquiry to redact material before it's put into pub, into the public domain. Certainly, if there's anything involving junior officials' names or anything of national security relevance or anything very personal. So there are procedures in place for dealing with this kind of material. Does seem to be a, a bit of a confusion there. Selma, when you watch the COVID inquiry heating up, all the lawyers involved, the prospect of many years of hearings, are you glad you left government in 2019? <laughs> yes, I'm afraid so. Yeah, I think the, the issue is that, you know, when you go into politics, there's always, even as a bad carrier as I was, there's always this sense that you're going to achieve something. And then the mm. reality of, you know, Whitehall and Westminster and those processes and those sort of conflicting agendas actually hits you. So, I mean, you mentioned it in your intro, the politics of this are incredibly difficult because the Prime Minister is attempting to get back on, a front, on the front foot yeah. in advance of a general election. And, you know, all this kind of process and procedural stuff, it does require thought, uh, and, but it does take over everything that you're doing. So, you know, he's got all this, these announcements out today um, or had this week, you know, regulation of AI, um, as we discussed earlier, you know, the um, uh, the kicking trade off deal. of a trade deal. Um, but none of that is actually sort of going into the public consciousness. What people are left with, really, is that feeling that actually their politicians are not uh, being straightforward with them. And that there is still an almighty row at the top. Uh, of this inquiry that we're not even really going to get to see the details of until 2026. So it just feels like um, another thing that the government actually cannot get a, a grip of, which is not a good place to be. Yeah. And Paul, I mean, you know, when this first broke last week, it was the cabinet office who was supposedly taking this position. Uh, you know, there was lots of talk about lawyers, but then Rishi Sunak came out and said that he was confidence in in the position that they had, but they were planning on being transparent and so forth. Ministers must have been involved in, you know, this is their decision to to do this. This isn't something that the lawyers and the cabinet office are pushing as was implied originally. Yeah, well, I asked at the lobby briefing after PMQs last week exactly what the role of ministers had been. For example, in deciding um, to refer to the police, the evidence that some of their civil servants had found. And they, number 10 were quite hazy on it, uh, but then basically said, well, we think it's ultimately the, the cabinet office, not the prime minister, which since emerged that Jeremy Quinn um, certainly was uh, aware, should we say, about of that reference, <clears throat> not necessarily that he pro- approved it, but he was aware of it. Um, mm. But that's a slightly different issue from the overall stance of Rishi Sunak and the government. And Sunak's stance as is normally typical with him, is he, he's a stickler for the rules. It is true. Mm. And he also does believe in the civil service, unlike Boris Johnson. So um, he's trying to balance the fact that he feels he has to go through with normal procedures with what he's received as advice from, from Sir James EDQC, suggesting, look, the whole government could be liable here unless you're really careful about it. Now, mm. I think given he's not a lawyer, um, Sunak has kind of gone along with that. The problem is that, there's going to be a real suspicion, particularly given what Boris Johnson has said in recent days, that look, he's perfectly happy to everything to be handed over. There's a suspicion that it, it, it's Sunak who's got something to hide. I mean, there's that great line in that play by James Graham called Privacy, which was all about 2013 and whether or not the government, the coalition government had anything 
um, uh, similar to the NSA's intrusion um, on personal privacy and personal data and whether or not GCHQ was spying on everyone. And there was a lovely line from William Hague. He popped up in this play and he kept saying this refrain, nothing to hide, nothing to fear. And mm. you just think, well, what's Rishi Sunak got to hide? And there's all sorts of suspicions. Is it about the out to help out? Did he know? Was he warned that actually that might spread the virus? Um, what was he doing behind the scenes in government and his own messaging about the second lockdown? Does he basically not want that to come out? Um, so there's got to be that suspicion. But there's yeah. a bigger picture, which is that unlike most public inquiries, I think uh, Lady Hallett's done something quite smart here, which is she's made clear what uh, right at the start what the modules are going to be, what different bits are going to be addressed in terms of a timeline. But also after six months after each module, she's going to give a report. She's not going to wait till the end. It's not going to be like a Chilcot or, or even a Hutton. She's not going to wait until she's heard all the evidence. She's going to do it as she goes along. And so there's going to be concrete recommendations and uh, findings roughly every six months after each module's taken its evidence. Um, and that's really interesting, I think, because there are some things that are going to go beyond the next election on this timetable. For example, the care homes um, yep. debacle, but also some good stuff for the government about vaccines, which come next summer. Um, certainly the public hearings. Um, I I've written last week about the fact that there's really interesting stuff in the first module about the preparedness of the UK for the pandemic. And this does cover Salma's lovely period in office, which is, um, that, you know, from since 2010, whether or not um, austerity had any role to play at all in how prepared or real prepared we were. So what Hallett's done is actually turn this public inquiry, in my opinion, into almost like a commentary on how well the British state is functioning and has functioned. Yeah. And that's very different from all previous public inquiries. It affected every single one of us, the pandemic. It's not like the Hillsborough or any other public inquiries where you might say, oh, well, a particular group of people are really upset about it. This affected everybody. And I think this is a sweeping yeah. scope of this inquiry that makes it really interesting. And 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 also is the the other argument as to why you know she's got to be able to see everything because it was touching upon so many different aspects of, of government. Tim, I mean, the government's defence has been a bit all over the place, but um, you know, one of it, as we said, was about not wanting material that is irrelevant about other aspects of government to be out. But a lot of this is is also because it's now WhatsApp, isn't it? Um, you know, talking to people who are involved with Chilcot, they said they had some struggles getting material, but it was mostly written material, not even kind of emails at, at that stage. But now there is this blurring of the lines. And do you think that's playing a big role in all of this, that WhatsApp might be a different story for them? I think that's right. I mean, yeah, you know, there is just so much more kind of written material now than the, the, there was, say, 10 or 20 years ago. You know, particularly during the pandemic, particularly the early stages, people weren't face to face, they weren't having conversations in a way that they would normally. And so there was a people were messaging each other. At the same time, we know that WhatsApp is kind of embedded in government and has been for at least the last sort of five years. You know, it's a useful tool. It's 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 an easy way of kind of communicating. That's that's not a bad thing. But it does mean that there is now a written record of things that they that wouldn't have existed in the past. And so you can see why the inquiry has kind of, you know, has identified this as a new area of evidence for it to look into. I think for, on the on the point about, you know, what the government has said, there is there is undoubtedly a benefit to certain things being kind of kept private and government being able to consider 
all the evidence and all the different options sort of in safe in the knowledge that people aren't going to be scrutinizing them immediately because that's how you can make better informed decisions and there is also inevitably in the whatsapps going to be irrelevant stuff that is you know personal information or people whatsapping about where they're going for tea that evening or whatever it might be but the point is as as we've already said it should be for the inquiry to decide what is relevant and to redact and ensure that the private stuff isn't published rather than people who are giving over the evidence deciding what they give yeah and the cabinet office has come in for quite a bit of stick over this chocolate teapot was my favorite (laughs) uh though i'm still not sure what that is is there something to the criticisms here is this you know bad handling from from their parts and the comms around it yeah i mean it does it does seem poor doesn't it? i mean it, it feels like the sort of uh, I saw someone on, on Twitter saying it's very kind of essay crisis vibes coming off the cabinet office. You know, there was a different kind of response or a different reason uh, every time they were asked. I think you mentioned about collective responsibility. That argument doesn't really seem to, to hold water at all. The idea being that uh, collective responsibility means ministers have to present a united front publicly, but they are allowed to disagree behind the scenes. And it's exactly that disagreement behind the scenes that the inquiry will have want, will yeah. want to be exploring. Um this argument about whether or not they actually had the information, obviously Boris Johnson and his team, I think, are quite enjoying sort of putting the pressure yes. on the Cabinet Office, saying, well, we've given it all over, it's for them to decide, you know, yeah. I'm happy for it to be released. So I don't think the Cabinet Office have have kind of played it well over the last couple of weeks. Um, uh, and I think, you know, they'll be quite bruised, I would imagine, after, after yeah, this. No Paul, um, our colleague Emma Norris wrote a piece yesterday saying the risk here is that you undermine public confidence in the inquiry. Do you think actually it's probably, given what you said earlier about Baroness Hallett, um, boosting confidence in the inquiry that she is going to do a thorough job? I think that's how she views it, that actually she realises this is going to be, as I said earlier, like no other public inquiry and that the public interest will be will be really huge. Um, so many people were affected by it and not just those who lost loved ones, but, you know, every single one of us, you know, were, were those lockdowns worth it? Were they not? Um, Notwithstanding that, obviously, that the NHS was the main driver that forced or encourage people to to agree to unprecedented restrictions on their freedom. Uh, the role of the NHS in all of this, you know, is much greater than that of any prime minister or minister. The, the, the public's love of the NHS is really what drove it. Um, I think that, that the interesting thing for the government is going to be how it, how it emerges from this little spat of the last few weeks. Does it look like it's itself trying to undermine the inquiry? Does it mm. just then say, as I suspect is more likely the case, that, as I say, Sunak wants it to be seen to be um, fair and is conscious all the time of potential damage to private government decision-making? But as I said, you know, this is a statutory inquiry. This isn't an FOI. The government, the cabinet office seemed to be mistaking an, an FOI request with a public inquiry. Um, you know, you can't hide behind those usual things about, oh, no, we can't discuss private policy making. Well, actually, yes, they can. That's the whole point. Um, and they're going to the government are going to have to trust them and trust Hallett to to basically have their the legal nous and the political sensitivity to work out what is and isn't relevant. I think. What will be interesting, and I think people will underestimate this on, on both sides, I think that Hallett will be laser-like in her focus on, has this relevance to the pandemic? I'm not mm. interested necessarily in all the other stuff, but if this has any uh, impact or contingency on the pandemic and what happened, then she's going to focus on it. Mm. 
Well, Boris Johnson may be back in the news. It is Rishi Sunak who looks set to carry his party through to the next general election. Yet he is also barely six months into his own premiership. So how do you govern in these circumstances? What can you achieve when you might have limited time and a looming election with its own set of distractions? Salma, this COVID inquiry row, it's surely a reminder of how much baggage Sunak has to contend with, not least Boris Johnson back in the news the last two weeks. How much intention do you see in Sunak's government and how much is it just reaction? I think, unfortunately, like all governments, you know, Rishi Sunak is faced with um, uh, the reality of events. And what's difficult for him is that he is the fourth prime minister in a long line of prime ministers that, that have gotten it pretty badly wrong. Um, and so that is also part of the baggage, not just the, the sort of legacy from Boris Johnson and the pandemic, but also everything that sort of came subsequently and before. So Theresa May, the election, the loss of that parliamentary majority, um, the inability to sort of get a grip under um, Boris and uh, Brexit, and then obviously Liz Truss. So he has this huge sort of contamination that he's got to deal with. I think the reality is that he tried to set out a course, you know, at the beginning of the year with his, his mm. five sort of tasks and policy asks. Um, and they were supposed to be sort of low bar enough for him to meet them. And of course, that's also not happening, especially around issues of small boats. And what's interesting about this, when you think about it from, you know, the state perspective, is that um, the civil servants know, <laughs> you know, it's not like because they're impartial, they don't understand what's happening in Westminster. Mm. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't suggest that there's a go slow mentality, which is what you know the phrase that you use in in, uh, in Washington, which is you know the the, the, bureau, the bureaucracy um, tends to sort of start stagnating. But I think there is that sense really that things are going to shift, and you know, is it going to be the same sort of imperative around what the prime minister wants to deliver? So, does he really have the levers at his disposal in order to sort of ramp things up quickly? Does mm -hmm. he have the sort of right priorities in place to be able to activate the machine that is Whitehall? And do the civil servants really have the faith that he is going to be able to focus? on the things that he wants to do. Um, and I'm not sure that that's in his favour. So ultimately, yes, it's reactive, um, but he has a lot of baggage that he is carrying with him, not just in relation to his, you know, two direct predecessors, um, but time is running out. And I don't think that there is a lot that he can fundamentally change. So it is essentially going to be more of a presentation exercise than it is anything more in depth or deeper. Yeah, and Paul, you wrote a piece this week about the Sunak effect, uh, that he's more liked than his party, including amongst a younger generation, but that this might not count for much. Is that something that Sunak might try to lean into? Um, is it going to affect his policy priorities between now and the election? Well, certainly when he's alongside the President of the United States next week in the White House, um, he'll be very, very tempted to think, oh, well, isn't it great being a president rather than a prime minister? Um, you've got these sweeping executive powers, um, you know, and you can run a presidential campaign, which you can rise above your party. And it's certainly true that he's obviously got um, a better brand in terms of uh, popularity compared to the party. But that's not saying a lot. The party brand is utterly trashed. And it's 
it's not just amongst the broad sweep of voters, particularly amongst millennials is what we were focusing on this week. Uh, and there was that report by the think tank Onward, which gave him a, a glimmer of hope that actually some of those younger people in the 20s and 30s actually quite prefer him to the Tory party. But then when you looked at the overall picture, um, they the, the things they were saying about the Tory party, about the fact they're incompetent, divided, only in it for themselves. And, you know, this is the first young generation in history, politically in Britain, who are not as likely as their predecessors to vote Tory in older age. So there's a big problem there. However, I wrote when Sunak actually um, was chancellor and he delivered his first conference speech as chancellor. I remember writing a piece back then saying Rishi Sunak actually could be future proofing the Tory party. He's in many ways he's the future brand that it should be you know um, it's not just the tech stuff it's the fact that he he's actually got a background in finance um, he, yeah he's a brexiteer but he's a pragmatic brexiteer he appeals to that sense that you know there is a bit of individual freedom still and then young people actually still like that um, and he talks the language of the modern world and that there was a credibly a case and still is for him to make that. And I think in terms of whether or not it's intentional reaction, I think he started off well this year by setting out some clear pledges and, you know, big tick for that, at least saying he will be matched by, he should be judged by those things. Also, he had his machinery of government changes, which we've talked about on this podcast before, which again gave you a sense that here's a go-ahead sort of forward-looking politician who thinks that, you know, there are certain levers he can pull. I think these big fundamental problem is misunderstood in each of his pledges um, what levers are available to him. On inflation, for example, which everyone thought was, you know, a bit of a slam dunk, he seemed to have this real problem in understanding that, you know, inflation is largely the responsibility of the Bank of England. And since it was made independent, there's nothing he can do on interest rates, absolutely nothing other than now appear to be backing interest rate rises, which is obviously politically quite toxic as people's mortgages have yet to go up. Only two thirds, only a third of mortgages have yet gone up. Two thirds yet to go up. So that's that's a real political problem on small boats. Again, it's largely beyond his control, a lot of that stuff. Um, and the other stuff on, on debt and growth, again, the global economic climate makes a big difference. What's not mentioned a lot uh, is this sort of fiction that the government comes out with, which says, actually, yeah, all right, the Bank of England deals with interest rates. But we set the overall macroeconomic policy and, you know, the chances doing a good job and making sure that, uh, we've got the right environment so that we can grow. Well, actually, yeah, up to a point, Lord Copper, because actually, if you look at Hunt's spending plans, all the pain is after the next election. They're doing nothing before the election to actually say to the markets, well, we've got a grip on spending and therefore, you know, we can point to how we can balance the books and uh, have a little room for growth for tax cuts, etc. Um, so it's slightly confused, I think, over what levers he can and can't pull. Yeah, well, Tim, on that front, um, obviously machinery of government, one of the things that Sunak did was reorganise several departments to create a new science and technology ministry, uh, something he said reflected his own priorities. Has that helped or hindered his government's ability to deliver? I mean, 
uh, it's cliche, but I think, you know, it's still a bit early to tell. I think there was a general view that the reorganization that he put in place was the right one. These are sort of, you know, sensible divisions of policy responsibilities. And as you say, the science and technology department is obviously a kind of key focus for this PM. So it makes sense. At the same time, there's always going to be a kind of a delay to how those departments get up and running because it takes time to organize, you know, new teams and new structures and so on and so mm. forth. There's a lot of kind of bureaucracy behind the scenes. Um, but I think... It is not enough to have a department that is responsible for your priority. You've got to know what you want out of that priority. So we, Salma mentioned, you know, AI regulation. That's obviously kind of one of the big themes in the news this week, aside from the inquiry. Is the new Department for Science and Technology, you know, what, what is their position on that? Are they going to be in the lead of that? How, how are they going to be working with the Prime Minister? What exactly is the UK's kind of vision for being a kind of a player in, in AI and, and that kind of developing area? I think... Those questions are still unanswered and it's not, as I say, it's not enough to just have a department that is named looking after this priority. You've got to know what you want to get out of it as well. Can I heartily concur with what Tim has just said? There is (laughs) nothing more useless in government than a machinery of government change. (laughs) And it's like, oh, here we go. Here's some like lovely new letterhead. uh, But what are we going to do with it? So all you end up with is kind of like civil servants fighting over a new hot desk Mm. in a new location. And actually, it doesn't do anything. Um, So, you know, New Labour was was really uh, guilty of this, you know, just changing stuff and being like, this is now a priority because we have a new department that's called whatever. Um, I mean, how many times was the business department re- renamed? Yeah. Um, but it doesn't actually fundamentally change the sort of functions of what something does. I mean, the, the thing that I found most annoying during my tenure, um, you know, in 2016, I was in the business department and it's had like six name changes since then. And yeah. fundamentally, it has done nothing for business policy because we are now at a, a low rate of growth. OK, pandemic and everything else aside. Um, but what does it do that's different? It's had energy in, it's had energy out, you know, it's had um, industrial strategy, it's had trade, it hasn't had st- trade. It doesn't fundamentally change anything. And I think this is one of the critical issues of a government at this stage in the electoral cycle. And I don't just mean in the last five years, I mean, having been in since 2010, is that you get to a point where you have gone through all these iterations, somebody new has come in, they've lost all that institutional knowledge of like what really happens in Whitehall and how to to use it. And fundamentally, they've disconnected from what they need to achieve in order to get to the next election. And they actually sort of become more creatures of Whitehall than they do of the politics. And so you you end up having a conversation, as Rishi Sunak is, I think, with what is sort of what matters in Whitehall, but not beyond. And I think at this point, it becomes much more critical to get a lot more political and really let the polling drive you. And this is a very cynical sort of political apparatchik view, which is, you know, what I was, a cynical political apparatchik. Um, But it is about driving that fundamental need of voters. Yes, the media is talking about AI. Yes, that is a really important thing that we need to regulate. But this is not the primary principal concern of the voter, the primary principal concern of the voter is the cost of their food basket, is what is going to happen to their mortgage. And unless the Prime Minister starts speaking to those particular aspects and issues, that sort of sense of falling away and that sort of dispersal away from from the core is just going to continue. 
Well, that was going to be my question. I mean, if if the Conservatives do lose the next election, Sunak's will be a two-year premiership, obviously. Who knows who would then be the opposition leader? Um, does that cause a tension then between what you might want to focus on as Prime Minister of your own legacy uh, if you, you know, end up with a short time in government, albeit quite long compared to Liz Truss, versus being pulled around for the general election about, you know, especially when you've got a party who uh, probably have very different views about what the election should focus on and what might win it for you. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the constant conflict, isn't it? Which is, what is, what is the kind of thing that is not um, grist to the political mill, you know, that mm. you need to do as prime minister and leader and those like fundamental systematic things that are, you know, really f- fundamentally quite boring and not something that Paul would necessarily want to write about when he's thinking about, you know, what's in his column and what, what he wants to report on in that week. Paul always likes talking about that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay, maybe Paul was a bad example. Um, uh, versus the kind of thing that drags you away to to what is kind of necessary for the day-to-day and what the voters are thinking about. That is the constant conflict. And that's why I suppose you do have that, you know, from my experience, that special advisor level in government that's kind of trying really desperately to balance those two things. At this point in the cycle, it does depend on on where you're up to and how much time you have left. I mean, that is that is the only question that we are now thinking about. And from a solely political perspective, he now needs to drill down and have total focus on what is going to come up whenever he decides to call that election. And he needs to be in a place where he has set um, the conditions as well as he can for that election. Obviously, you know, business will continue, government business will continue, but trying to launch anything particularly new and not sort of focus on the fundamentals, I think would be very detrimental to any hope he has of retaining his office. But I think I think there is a point here which is often forgotten, which is that the party interest and the national interest, they may look very different, but in the long run, I think in the long run, not the short run, not in the immediate election that follows uh, a government. Um, in the long run, I think you get credit for working in the national interest and sorting out the things that aren't necessarily yeah. electorally salient. So it reminds me that John Major, for all his faults, and there were many political faults, you know, he achieved and laid the ground for the Northern Ireland uh, peace process in a big, big way, didn't get credit for it, had a, a major impact. Blair credited him for it. Uh, on the economy, he righted the economy after the disastrous Black Wednesday. He handed Labour a golden economic legacy, uh, as well as this possibility of peace in Northern Ireland. And yet he was hammered at the polls. And I think from Sunak, I hate to say this, but I think he may have to contend with something very similar, which is, I think that he's quite an honourable man. I think he'll want to do, quotes the right thing by the nation. And that means getting the public finances in order. It might not mean giving away massive tax cuts that some, some, some Tory backbenchers want. They'll get a little bit of an income tax cut. Um, but in, in terms of what he's offering politically, I don't think there's anything that exciting. What he can offer is the promise that basically I steadied the ship after the disasters. Look, we're edging our way iteratively towards this new future, which involves science, which involves AI, which involves sorting out the massive problems of, of net zero and how we achieve it in a growing economy. How do we 
How do we cope with a, a falling birth rate and, a, and an elderly population and, and some kind of iterative process, progress on all of those, which every government's going to have to deal with. And he won't hand over a golden legacy to the next Labour government. But if he doesn't hand over the disaster, then that would be quite a decent legacy for himself, I think. I, but in that, Paul, and I I agree with you, but in that you also require, because what you're talking about really from the major years is that good chap theory of government that has sort of dis- disintegrated over a, a long period of time, which is the idea that you are always ultimately trying to do the right thing. And that, you know, for various reasons and with various people has been really fundamentally challenged. I think there are those things that everybody cares about, you know, like net zero, like sort of tackling that huge issue of climate change. But there is that immediate need as well. And I think you have to ensure that your government is balanced against those long term objectives and also the immediate needs, because there is going to be this struggle and there is going to be this analysis of what did the last 13 years of a Conservative government actually mean. And there are lots of people on the right who are not necessarily economically dry. So Tim Montgomery, for example, who's been, you know, a very big figure in Conservative politics, you know, over the last two decades, who is talking about those issues of inequality. And I think you have to understand that that is the immediate need. It's not necessarily, you know, just politics. It is about what are people thinking about right now? And government needs to balance that better, I think, at the moment, if Rishi has any chance at the polls going forward. And if really people are going to think of him as a good man who's trying to do the right thing. It's not just about doing the right thing on the issues. It's about doing the right thing by people. And just as a last point, I really hate this idea of if a prime ministerial legacies. Legacies are given to you if you've done a good job, right? Just do the bloody work when it when it comes down to it in the first instance. You know, people want to set their own legacies. They've already decided on the first day of office, you know, what they want to be remembered for. It's kind of like, just do the work and, you know, the rest of us will figure out your legacy later. Well, that's a good point to leave it for today. Thank you for listening at home and thank you to Tim Durrant and especially to Salma Shah and Paul Watt. Thanks for joining us. You can find all our podcasts at iTunes, Spotify and all major platforms and be sure to subscribe and give us a good review. And we have an event next Tuesday with Meg Hillier, the chair of the Public Accounts Committee, who will be discussing her annual report with Alex Chisholm, permanent secretary for the Cabinet Office and, as we now know, First cousin, once removed, in-law, yes, mum, I got that right, (laughs) to Harriet Harman. Uh, Should be a fascinating event. You can register for the event to join in person or online on our website. Well, it's definitely not been a quiet recess, so join us next week to see if the return of MPs to Parliament helps calm everything down. Have a good weekend, everyone.